Welcome everyone to the podcast. This is a new thing we're going to try. Um, I just thought I've heard enough of my mom's testimonies. Not that I've heard enough, but <laughs> I think everyone should hear some of my mom's testimonies. And we're going to, I'm going to ask her stories about her life. And she's got an interesting story. I think she's got a perspective. No one else really could understand or comprehend what she's gone through. And we're, I'm going to try to get her to express that. And it's going to be like pulling teeth. Cause she doesn't want to do it, but I'm going to ask her questions and I'm going to record it. And we're going to get to know more about, uh, the church of Christ and her and my influence. Well, it's very personal. It is personal. And I hope, thank you. I'll just say that it is personal. Thank you for doing this. This is not my mother's comfort zone by any means. So the first question is going to be, how did this all start? Tell me how it started where would you say the beginning was i started i met your dad in 1965 i guess somewhere around january he was going with my girlfriend and i thought oh what do you see in that guy but anyway i met bill in january and we he proposed in april and we were married in june uh we were the first of our group to be married, our group of friends. And, you know, the whole dynamic changed once you're married. You're yeah, a lot of the dynamic changes when you meet them in January, get married in June, and all your friends kind of leave you. That's a very short interlude. Care to comment more on that? Would you suggest everyone else <laughs> take the your route? Well, I'm not sorry, but... But yeah, a lot a lot happened. I graduated June 2nd and married June 12th. And June 23rd, my younger brother who had been at my wedding, the only member of my family at my wedding, my older brother was in the Navy in Vietnam. Anyway, my younger brother was killed in a car accident June 23rd. So there was a lot. A lot going on back then, but we we ended up uh, moving to Phoenix to deal with some of the things emotional, I guess, things that we were going through. Of course, I I was pregnant by July, and uh, so yeah, there was a lot going on. All our kids were born in Phoenix. I was baptized after we lived in Phoenix for a couple years. I was baptized in 1968, I believe. Okay, so there's three years there that we have to go back and visit. You don't just move to Phoenix and then decide to get baptized. You moved to Phoenix, and your life was just upside down, right? All kinds of things. Nothing was like how it was six months ago. I saw palm trees. I didn't know Phoenix had palm trees. Getting off the airplane, I saw palm trees. But yeah, uh, Sharon Kelly... Um, was uh, Bill's mother's cousin. She was the first person in, from the church in Phoenix that I met. After that, we we visited with uh, Bill's, I guess she'd be her, his great aunt, Evelina Sills, and um, Hubert and Louise Yates, a lot with Hubert and Louise. They were, we went out to them in Paradise Valley a lot, a lot. Of course, we learned the milk of the gospel right there with Hubert and Louise. How many people could say that, that they learned the milk of the gospel from Hubert and Louise? A bunch, a bunch, a bunch of people could say they, that was, that was the. I'm just going to tell you to talk louder. I can't talk louder. You have to talk louder. So, okay. Yep. We knew Sharon and Larry Kelly. We knew Jim and Wanda Yates. Well, we didn't. We started going to church there, and that's who it was. Sharon and Larry, uh, Jim and Wanda, Hubert and Louise, Don and Betty, Betty's sister Bonnie and her daughters. Sometime just shortly before us, um, John and Verna Jones moved to Phoenix. And that was your... Your your network that was the your support group that was your oh that was the whole local that yeah. was the whole local oh okay. man yeah that was that was um, and Verna's sister Dorothy Victor Hausnick moved there just about the same time 
But that was it. Yeah, that was it. And so you spent three years. And that three years, whose couch did you sit on and learn the most? Oh, I have this look on my face because when Dennis was a baby, he we had to have Evelina's couch cleaned. <laughs> oh, that's a good story. <laughs> no, no, no. We were... It wasn't a couch. It was around Hubert and Louise's kitchen table. Oh, kitchen table. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. When we first moved to Phoenix, it was Hubert and Louise. We were there all the time. All the time. Um, They always had some extra kids staying with them, too. But Bill and I would be there every chance we get, and we would study with Hubert and just, just all the time. Up until a point when uh, when Bill started calling me woman, <laughs> and I thought, ah, uh, this isn't gonna fly. Ah, uh, no. We kind of kept studying with Hubert and Louisa, but eventually we worked our way over to John and Vernon Jones, <laughs> and then uh, we studied with them, and uh, their daughter Jonna would uh, babysit for. D- for me with Dennis eventually the study got heavier and deeper and we connected with Don and Betty and did a lot of studying there we uh, used to assemble the hand of fellowship at their dining room table on a mimeograph machine I remember taking my kids there we we did everything with the kids around I remember a few incidences with Darren when he was little there he's about three I remember Betty having us over for dinner one time. I grew up on a farm or in the Keys in Florida. And we're putting the dinner, I'm helping her put the dinner out on the table and it's beans and cornbread. And I said, that's all? Just beans and cornbread? I was not raised that way. It was meat, potatoes, and vegetables. And here she invites us over and she's laughing right now if she's hearing this. Yep, beans and cornbread, that's what it is. It was uh it was it was a wonderful, wonderful time growing up. And then you get baptized. As I understand it, you beat Gramps. I was baptized before Bill was. He his is a, a unique story, I think. He uh over the years, you know, we we be, well the first thing they did was in elect him Sunday school superintendent. That that was that was genius. It scared him. Anyway, he became Sunday school superintendent, and we we studied a lot, a lot, a lot with Hubert. Um, we studied also with John and Vernon Jones, and then I kind of well, we then we studied with Don McIndoe. And it was his church, but you had a stronger Christian background. Um, he never grew up in a church. He was always isolated, and I always went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. So who knew the most Bible stories? Me. Yeah. You were quicker to pick up and and embrace the... He thought, no, 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 he thought he was a member of the church. He he had a very strong um, uh, memory of his being baptized in a irrigation ditch in Grand Junction when he was eight or nine years old. Well, uh, then there was history. Of course, he's 21 now, and and he's feeling... Um, uh, it was back when the, we were going to concerts with the Gaithers and um, attending the Gaithers concerts. Yeah, you made it sound like you're yeah. buddies. No, 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 okay. we're not buddies with the Gaithers. Anyway... It was a, a song uh, called uh, Till I Prayed Through, and it was popular that at that time. At, at one of the, just before one of the, or in the early, maybe on a Friday of the Phoenix reunion that year, that's what he did. He, he stayed up all night and prayed through the night about his desire to be of service. Now he was he was a sur- uh, of service to the congregation. He was uh, auto mechanic. Well, not a real. He was a shade tree mechanic, and he he would help people with their automobiles, and he would paint cars, and he would he was a big help um, 
he felt like God didn't know he existed. And so this night, that's what he did. He prayed through. By by this time, we are attending regularly. We are we are members of the Phoenix Local, strong members of the Phoenix Local. But um, he couldn't understand. He felt like God didn't know he existed, and that's what he was asking for. Show me a sign that you know I'm I'm here. They could never find a baptism certificate for him. But uh, he had a memory of this baptism by um, Bob Willard, his uncle Bob Willard, in Grand Junction at a reunion in an irrigation ditch while his older brother, Jim, was baptized in that exact scenario. And what we think happened was that it had such an effect on Bill that he took it to be his baptism. He remembers it as being his baptism, but there never was any record of it. And so over the years, they they just took his word for it. And then um, he and Don McIndoe talked one time. Oh, back to this this evening of praying through that that reunion he was spoken to in tongues i believe anyway let me um, guess don house nick i think that's who it was yeah yeah bill and don mackendoo got to talking and don mackendoo finally he just said well why don't just the two of us go up on the rim go to the lake i'll baptize you and you know how there's no record so that's how they resolved it and boom, right after, right after he was called. So his first sermon, he preached at the new church on Siesta Lane. Okay. Before we go to the new church, let's talk about Harvard Street. Yeah. Harvard Street, for all of us, I think, I think it was the new, maybe you could call it the second generation Phoenix, um, because Ed and Louise uh, McIndoe and Cavanesses, Orn and Esther Cavanesses, they had all come back to Missouri and were in southern Missouri. And so now this new younger group, which would be Harold and Donna Gill and Hubert and Louise Yates and Jim and Wanda Yates and Don and Betty McIndoe and Bonnie Sanders, Betty's sister, it would be John and Verna Jones and Victor Hausnick. Victor Hausnick and um, Verna's sister and maybe a few others, but the initial group. Oh, Clem and Evelina Sills were still there. The initial group that built the Harvard Streets Church were not there anymore, but it was us. It was us, and it was like we were the new generation a new family and we were tight i don't know how else to say it we were they were older than we were but we were a very close family very close i mean we put on reunions i baked my first pie for a a phoenix reunion and and i'm bawling and bawling because i couldn't get the crust to turn out to lift up off, you know, and get into that. that's the, important. Yeah, well, they wanted homemade pies. You just don't understand. Okay. And neither did your dad. And I'm crying, and he says, well, go buy Mrs. Smith's. Oh, and that's a joke. He complimented Betty one time. Your, pie, your apple pie tastes as good as Mrs. Smith. Well, let me tell you, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> anyway, I tasted my cherry pie, and it was tart. And so I added sugar. (laughs) And when they cut it open the next day, it ran all over the place. But Betty said it was the best cherry pie she had ever tasted. (laughs) She is a sweetheart, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, there are a million stories. But that group was a loving group. Oh, boy. We were were very tight. And, And the service. Tell me about the service. We had a reunion 
at the end, the last service of that reunion, it was a preaching service, of course, but at the end, Bonnie Sanders stood up and said, well, let's, let's, it's been such a wonderful reunion. Let's have a season of prayer and thank God for this. And wow, what a season. It lasted until one o'clock in the morning. I mean, the season of prayer lasted until one o'clock in the morning. We were just so blessed and so thankful for this reunion. And I remember telling Bill, it was like, I didn't even feel like my knees were on the floor. I, I thought, it just felt like I was floating there in the season of prayer. It was, it was just fabulous. It was, anybody that was there that night will, re, will give you the same report. It, I, we did not pull away from there until after one o'clock in the morning. We were just giving thanks for the for the reunion that we had and the time we had spent together. I don't remember anything about the reunion. I just remember that season of prayer that we had. That confirms one of my suspicions about sermons. Nobody really remembers the sermon. <laughs> Everyone loves the story. The story is what drives our memories, and not necessarily the message, but uh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. The story is you had a service in the morning, and then the evening service was in the new church. Oh, yes. Um, we were outgrowing that little chapel there. We had a morning service. I think we even had lunch. And then we packed everything up. We had our trucks ready, and we moved it all out to Siesta Lane to the new church. Our final service in the old one and our new in the new church. Boy, this is going back a long time, but the, it seems like there was a, a tongues. There was um, at that new service. There were we had a dedication service, and uh, there was a tongues. the The phrase "an oasis in the desert" was presented at that time, and that that truly is what the Phoenix local has been. The thing about that group, though, was, uh, like I said, we were tight. And and when we, there was the building fund, because we were outgrowing it. Of course, there were choices. And uh, to stay in town and look somewhere in there, or Skeet and Francis had, I think, two and a half acres out in um, Paradise Valley that they gave to us. And we ended up selling it and buying the, I believe it's six acres total uh, out where the church is now. But the thing is, at the business meetings, I remember a time when, I don't, I don't know if I should name names. You can edit this. Evelina Sills, one of the generations before uh, Skeet Yates' sister stood up and said, she says, you guys are crazy. You guys are crazy. We need to buy this church right down the street that has everything built, and we just pay for it, and we just move in. Yeah, she did think we were crazy, but the thing about it was when the vote came up, we voted to buy the acreage out in the, in the valley, and she said, I think you're crazy, but I'm with you. That's how we were. If the vote came down to we want to buy out in Timbuktu, we would have stuck together and done it. It was that kind of a relationship early on from the very beginning. We did everything together, everything. We played volleyball together. We had picnics together. We had. It was like we couldn't get enough of being together. We went to Seven Springs and had picnics. We played volleyball on Friday night at Encanto Park. We had potlucks. We had birthdays. We had, you know, your kids were my kids kind of thing. It, it, was, it was a time like you think of happy days in the 50s, you know. It was a special time. When did Dad get called? I think it happened at the new church and I'm remembering uh, something involving Bill and Wanda and Don, Wanda Yates, Don McIndoe, and Kathy Ely heard Bill's name. None of the rest of us heard it. 
as Bill, Bill Malone, William C. Malone. Because it was, let me explain, this is a speaking in tongues. Yeah. Someone speaks in a foreign language. No one can understand it. And yet some people did. It was a language that they could not have known. And yet some people heard the translation. Yeah. I think he was called with someone else. We need to rehearse this. Okay. Um, I think he was called with from with someone. But then there was a time where uh, there was another tongues where he was admonished. What would be the word afterwards? You know, you would think if you were admonished afterwards, he did not ha- take an offense to it. He embraced it. He it made him. I, I'm stuck for the Lord a word. chastises those he loves. Yeah, definitely chastised and not admonished, chastised. He was chastised and he appreciated it. It was something he felt was very dear to him. There's a couple of tongues involving your dad that were were very special. But the the odd thing was after his baptism, boom, he was called. He was called. Things were going good. Uh, we you bought the got the shop going. That was a struggle, right, for a couple of years. You have to understand. Back in those days, well, the church, the new church property was way out on the desert, north of Union Hills. We put our houses up for sale, and of course, Don and Betty sold right away, <laughs> and. And that kind of propelled us. Hubert and Louise were already out there in that neighborhood. They didn't need to, but we did. Don and Betty did. We sold our house and bought a smaller house out there closer to the church. But I remember getting in trouble. We did not have money. We had, we were tight. I remember Bill getting upset with me and telling me, you may not go out there and plaster those walls. We can't afford the, we cannot afford the gas for you to be going out there every day. And so I would sneak out there. And Betty and Kathy and I, well, mostly, honestly, mostly Kathy and Betty did all the taping and texturing on that. They had Theirs was the first building to go up. So they were living there, and then we built the church next. Even in all of that, we did not have money. How in the world we ever got this going? I have. It was God that did it. I mean, none of us had money. We got were the, all struggling. So what, what year are we in about now? Uh, no, uh, nineteen seventy. Because nineteen sixty-eight, you got baptized. Nineteen seventy, okay, somewhere yeah, around there. Must have when was it? I gotta look these up. I yeah. remember you were born in seventy. You better get this right. Four. Thank you. Uh, and we were. Uh, you were two years old when we lived. When we bought that five acres as a group, it seemed like we needed just over two thousand dollars for our portion of that acreage which would have been a third acre we did not have it we did not have it Harold Gill and Donna Harold asked his brother for his down payment and John Gill said I got enough for one more and it was me and Bill you have to understand none of us had any funds to pull this off I mean nothing nothing we had old rickety cars we had we bought our furniture from an auction if it wasn't given to us Betty and Don were in the same situation nobody had anything and yet we pulled this off God's hand was in it the whole way yet when you move in you have the the oasis in the desert prophecy and that's how God works right that's I will build this you didn't build it God built it we built it free and clear there was no loan we believed in what we were doing yes we did have outs a little outside help but um it to think about it now (laughs) yeah it was just quite quite something yeah that's a lot of church history but tell me you and and yeah dennis and darren and, and and I was on the way, I guess. And you had uh, an inkling of, of being a circuit board manufacturer with dad was doing that. Oh, you were already born. 
Uh, right, but he was working it. He was quality. He was he was working um, a lot of different places, and for the first seven, for the first eleven years we were married, we never had a paid vacation because he'd work for this place and he'd work eighty hours a week, and they'd go belly up and they'd go belly up and they'd go belly up. I was so sick of it, and finally in nineteen eighty. I convinced him to drop this circuit board junk or this plating stuff and get a job with farmer's insurance like my dad. And they had a program. And so he was starting to do this. He was working on setting up his, he had his license and all that. And he got a phone call and he wasn't home. I got the phone call from a friend of his in the plating industry. And this guy says, I've got an offer he can't refuse. And I thought, you want to bet? I'm not telling him. And so <laughs> it was like two weeks later, I finally told him. And this was for quality printed circuits downtown, way downtown, way far away from where we were living. He did accept the job, and his new boss introduced him as one sent from heaven. <laughs> and... It was that man who made a change in our. He appreciated. Gonzalez. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bob Gonz Gonzalez. Bob Gonzalez. Bob and Marty. He appreciated all that Bill did. And Bill did make him a rich man. He, that was the team that Bob needed to start this new circuit board business. Well, that leads into the Darren thing. It was Bob Gonzalez. It's ATV that we were. Bob Gonzalez was so good to us. He was going to send us on our vacation, Bill and I. He bought cruise tickets. He gave us money for clothing. His wife gave me sundresses to wear. Anyway, we were supposed to go on this um, cruise. And uh, the Wednesday before, uh, we were supposed to leave on a Thursday. So a week before. Darren started having dreams. Something terrible is going to happen to our family. And so on a Wednesday night, a week before we were supposed to leave, at the it was so embarrassing. At the end of the service, you know, kids have to go to school the next day, and it's 9 o'clock already, and I just said, well, if you all would just remember Darren, he's anxious about us leaving uh, in a week and he's having dreams something terrible is going to happen to our family. And, of course, it was Hubert. He says, well, let's kneel in a season of prayer. And me, I was a little embarrassed. But looking back, that prayer service, who knows what might have been without that prayer service. So we had the prayer service. And uh, that Sunday, we were going to take, because of all the anxiety, we were going to take just our boys. We kind of snuck out because there were always kids at our house. We kind of snuck out with just our three boys and Bob Gonzalez's ATVs. And we went out on the desert just to have a little fun while we were unloading the vehicles from the back of a pickup truck and uh, the first one off Bill told Darren to jump on and go turn around and come back you know make it come anyway he told him to go get on it take it over there turn around and come back and we were unloading the second one and Bill looked up and he says to Dennis um Go. He saw a whirlwind, a dust devil. He says, go check there. And he looks like he's stuck in the d dirt. Darren, Dennis took off and... I, I can hear him. He said, Dad, get the truck. Dad, bring the truck. And Darren, Darren had been hit by a humongous big motorcycle. It was He was ten, not... Oh, he was 10 years old. Probably his fault. 
but he was hit by a big, beefy motorcycle head-on, right, right on the handlebars. Just, just, anyway. So we brought the truck and um, scooped him up, left Daniel and Dennis on the desert. headed for the nearest hospital, honking the horn the whole way. And we got to that intersection on Cave Creek and Siesta Lane. Do we turn here and go to the church or do we go on to the hospital? <laughs> we, we went on to the hospital. We called back to the church. To, to, I guess Bill called Dwayne and told him um, what had happened and that we'd left the two boys out on the desert and would he go get them. Shortly, Don and Jay came to the hospital to administer to Darren. You know, Jay's remark after after the administration, he said he felt the the weariness of years. Darren was in the hospital for three months, and when we took him home, he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't. You know, it's pretty serious. But but the thing of it is, when the call went out prayers for Darren. We had hit the, we always went to the Colorado reunion. That was a, a done deal. The year before in 1979, we attended all of them. The Colorado, the conference, the um, Missouri reunion. Uh, we stayed with Buzz and Sue. Um, we got to know all these, all these people and so when the call went out, they knew who Darren was. I'd, that's something that I don't think is coincident. They knew who Darren was. They, they had, anyway. So you had this picture of this little 10-year-old kid with a head injury. So, you know, not coincidence. And we felt so supported. And, of course, our, our local... We arranged to stay with Darren 24/7. My mom, came, my my folks came down, and from Colorado, and um, Bill would take the 10 o'clock to 6 a.m. shift. I would be there from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and my mom would take the other shift. There came a time when the doctor was going to he was going to forbid us to be in the ICU with Darren. And uh, he wanted me to go home. And I said, uh, of course, I started bawling. And I said, uh, we, had just, we had just gotten to the point where we were going to sort this shift thing out. And I, I told him that. I'm, I'm bawling my eyes out. And I said, we're, we're just working it out. We're just working it out. Bill's going to take this shift. I'm going to take this shift. And my mom's going to take this shift. I'm going to go home. But not yet. <laughs> and then uh, I remember uh, Bonnie Sanders came and took a Sunday shift so Bill and I could go to church. And Bonnie Sanders is Betty McIndoe's sister. And so we come to church, and we walk in the door and the, at the entryway there, and the first person we saw was Dwayne Ely. It's another thing you just never forget. The look in his face, the look in his eyes, this didn't just happen to us. It happened to the whole local it affected everybody. It was their kid, their Darren, that is laying in the hospital in this serious condition, unconscious, not responding, all that kind of stuff. You know, it happened to everybody. 
it was that kind of a, a local. How many months was he unconscious? Three. He started... Three months he was like that, and three months you had the support of the local. How many people outside of the local? Oh, oh yes. Um, yes, I got a, I got a letter, a, a very long letter from Evelyn York from Columbia Falls from her son, Marshall. He, Marshall had recently been in a motorcycle accident and had much the same thing. And Marshall himself wrote me this letter that it sustained me through, um, through so much of this. You know, she, she knew what it was, what I was going through. And Marshall himself, I mean, it changed his life. He was engaged to be married and had this motorcycle accident and then everything fell apart but and he was never the same after that a head injury you know once you've experienced that when you hear it on the news to somebody else you know their life is never the same so many people by this time John and Verna Jones had moved to Houston and Verna was uh, going through her cancer and it was in the earlier stages, but we would we would call John and Verna and talk to them. Yeah, there was there was a lot of support, and of course, oh, years years later, we're on a missionary trip out west with Roger and Martha Bruner. I was preparing myself because they kind of told me where we would be going, and I'm going to I'm thinking to myself. I'm going to meet Evelyn. After all these years, I'm going to meet Evelyn. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything about the letters or anything like that, but she had MS, and she was in a nursing home by this time. We're traveling along, and um, they didn't think we'd have time before this. In the days before, it didn't look like we would have time to stop by there and see her. And then... We're within 25 miles or something like that. And Roger says, oh, I think we're going to have time to see Evelyn York. And I'm in the back seat thinking, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, I'm going to see Evelyn and I only have a few minutes to prepare <laughs> because it was such a monumental thing that she did for me. And she's, I had heard, Roger had told us how she was, had this MS, and she was the inspiration of the whole nursing home. They just loved her. She was just so positive, even in her situation, which was really extreme. And, you know, I don't know if anybody else noticed it, but Evelyn and I, we noticed. I, it was just a very special, special um, experience for me to meet her and tell her what what that letter meant for me dad had a hard time with it oh yeah he did the church prayed and the church prayed and the church prayed and dad didn't want to give up there was just fatigue on everybody from from for praying uh, maybe not fatigue but it was a lot of praying dad never got the answer he wanted which was a healing for darren and he started to become uh, angry with God. Yeah, he was. He was. How could you let this happen to a sweet little 10-year-old kid? I remember that. So many things happened. You, you could see God's hand in things. One thing was uh, we took Darren home from the hospital uh, shortly before we took him home permanently, the the nursing staff said, um, "Well, yeah, go ahead. You can have him for the, we we approached them. Maybe he'd be more comfortable at home." And so we asked him if we could take him home for the weekend. And of course, I was an idiot. I didn't know what I was asking. And uh, he had an NG tube. We, NG tube. What's that? Uh, goes. You feed through the nose. Goes into your stomach. 
And uh, we had a hospital bed set up in the living room. We brought him home. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. He couldn't sit up. We had to try him into a chair. He was wearing diapers, all of this stuff. And you had to feed him through this NG tube. Well, they trusted me. They showed me. Well, I knew. Kind of, I watched them feed him through the NG tube. It looked like a cakewalk to me. But what I didn't know was things like aspiration and stuff like that. And after the weekend at home, I went. I asked the nurse when we were back in the hospital, I said, how did you dare let him go home with us? And her response was, well, we didn't think you could do any harm. He was that bad off. So we had him at home. Then he, after he got home from the hospital, he, well, no, after the hospital, he went to rehab for a month, and they about killed him there. They, his mouth, oh, his jaw was broken, and his mouth was wired shut. And the nurse there at the rehab center would mix a little solution of um, hana- uh, hydrogen, pro- right. hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide and, uh, and uh, mouthwash and water. And she'd brush his teeth with it. Uh, apparently, she got the mixed wrong, and he swallowed some. Of course, his mouth is wired shut. He can't exactly swallow, but some went down. And he it starts foaming and coming out of his mouth, and his mouth is wired shut, so he's just having—and he's still comatose. He's not a really awake yet. His eyes are open and looking at you, and he's foaming at the mouth. And we get him all cleaned up and calmed down. And, okay, whew, wow, that was close. And then the rehab people, it's time come, and they say, oh, it's time to go down for physical therapy. And the kid is wrung out like a dish rag. And I said, now we just had this episode. Why He, he can't, pop, oh, yeah, he's got to come now. I'm. They take him away. I'm waiting in the room for them to bring him, you know, to have his physical therapy. I'm kind of trailing behind. They get him to the elevator, and before the doors close, he does it again. Well, then they're convinced that the kid can't go have therapy because this incident. I went and called this doctor back at St. Joe's, and I said, get us out of here before they kill him. And he was the most amazing, amazing doctor. He was Australian. Just just incredible doctor. The neurosurgeon was a codfish. But anyway, so we get him home, and we're dealing with things. And it's summertime, and Bill came home from work one day, and he said... You'll never guess what. Uh, that that money I invested in the company, how do you share shares or whatever you do, you know, I are I don't know what it is. He invested some money with about with um quality printed circuits and even though he wasn't working with them anymore, he had started his own shop, I guess. Bob Gonzalez had to pay him this fourteen thousand dollars. And we had been thinking, okay, for Darren, our mode of transportation has to be different because he's still in diapers, he can't walk, he's in a wheelchair, blah, 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 blah. And we had been thinking about a motorhome and praying about a motorhome. And the motorhome cost $14,500. So, and, and the check was $14,498.35. Yeah. I think something like that. It was. Oh, I'm just, telling you, I, that's I. You remember that? I think so. Yeah, it was just you. You couldn't be upset because things were happening that just fit. You know, they're just blessings were coming and coming and coming. And then uh, back to dad being a little angry, uh, not understanding. Um, we took Darren and you up to um, Utah 
at a place called uh, the Emerald Pools, Zion National Park, I think. Anyway, we're on this trail, and it said it was an easy trail, and Darren was walking by that time, not really communicative, but uh, he was walking, and it said it was an easy trail, and so we went for this little easy trail. I think it was a mile, mile and a half maybe, half a mile, who knows. Anyway, we're walking along, and I had Darren, and he uh, his gait was affected, and he, he uh, held on to your hand until the circulation was cut off in your hand. He held it so tight because he was so spazzo, and so I said something to Bill, and and so Bill took a turn, you know, with Darren, and I caught up with Daniel. I remember this path, and this was sheer drop-off cliffs. It's an easy path, but what they're not telling you is, is there there is a chain on the ground, right? Uh, in the wall. In the wall, okay. But the path is about three and a half, four feet wide. Yeah. And if you fall over the side, it's about 600 feet sheer straight down. It's an easy path. But it's not recommended for somebody say with a gate. it was 600 gait. feet, but you wouldn't survive You wouldn't it. survive. All right. Uh, uh, 150, 200? Yeah, it was. Well, we'd have to go revisit for, so, it. it. So was from a my perspective way. as a kid that age, it, it might as well have been 600 feet. Uh, you wouldn't live. And we're walking along this path. If I was you, I could see you saying, I've got one kid who needs my hand hold, held, right? And another little kid who's running up too far ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I understand the predicament you're in. And I yeah. and I and I remember dad had Darren for a while and even he said, Grab a hold of the chain. When we got to the chain, Bill said, get to the chain. Well, I'm gonna jump ahead <clears throat> a week or so. We're at the Missouri reunion in a prayer service, and Bill stands up. And starts giving this testimony about taking Darren to the Emerald Pools and and Daniel ahead and me trying to catch up with Daniel. And he gets to the point where there's the chain and is shaking his hand uh, to get the circulation back in it. And uh, he says, later that night, I'm in the motorhome and I'm saying my prayers and thanking God for the day and this is Bill talking now he's reviewing the day and he gets to the point where he tells Darren grab the chain and he's shaking his hand and he's thinking about that and he said something just didn't look right when I reviewed it in my mind something was off Darren should not have been able to grab that chain. He was leaning toward the open edge. He had, he was, it was, and then he heard this voice. That's when I gave him back to you. And we're hearing this. I'm hearing this. You could have heard a pin drop in a prayer service in the Missouri reunion for the first time. And I look across the church, and Betty is over there. Betty McIndoo is over there, and we're all hearing this for the first time, and we're ready to kill Bill for telling us this. In a, you did what? This is the first time we heard this testimony was there in that Missouri reunion. Yeah, I gave him back to you, and that was that was when he had the change of heart that that you know this could happen to a 10 year old but so the day we were walking on that path i heard darren say dad yes yes and i turned around in time to see dad holding darren and making a joke about it. where you think you're going get back over here and hold on to the chain but yeah that was he was saying his prayers and in his prayers he heard god's voice telling him i gave him back to you he was bitter about losing his son, and it took, I mean, this was years. A couple years. A couple years he lived like that, and then this testimony happens. Yeah. 
like I said before, it, it didn't just happen to us. I'm sure it happened to you guys here. The guys in Missouri having just met us pretty much and met the family and other little things like we stayed at Buzz and Susan. I insisted, oh, yeah, sure, Sue, I, I send watermelon down, rinds down the garbage disposal. And while we did it, and I plugged up Buzz's garbage disposal that summer, just lots of things happened, lots of things. We got to know so many people that year. And, uh, yeah, after that, you know, you're dealing with this kid who can't walk and can't talk and will never be the same as you know, and I could, I could, as long as I knew what the situation was, yep, I can diaper a kid forever. I, you know, that it's, he, he progressed from that, but as long as I knew what I had to deal with, I, I was okay with it. But then in October, Darren started having seizures and that just about was my undoing. He had the accident in March and had started seizures having not real, never has had a real big seizure, but these seizures were, you never knew when they were going to come. You couldn't predict them. You didn't know why, nothing. And I, that was just about my undoing, I remember walking over to Don and we lived next door to Don and Betty at that time, Don and Betty McIndoo. I remember walking over there and just undone and telling them, I don't think I can take this. But really, it hasn't been something insurmountable. It's not what we planned, but it all worked out. So let me editorialize a little bit. What the purpose of this podcast is, a journey. It's inspirational to think of what someone's path looks like and a spiritual growth and the community that it took and the strength of the people around you throughout this path you've been on. What would it have been like could you have done it without the Church of Christ? For my yoke is easy.